we know working in this field, these crimes don't discriminate. They can affect anybody regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation, recognizing that this crime doesn't discriminate. And it may not be your child, but maybe it's your child's best friend. So the red flags like controlling behaviors, overbearing, tracking someone on their electronic devices, isolating them from their friends and family. It's hard to accept that somebody who we're in a relationship with would hurt us and abuse us. You know, you never want to blame somebody for being in the situation that they are. They should never feel like it's their fault. What could come after that incident will escalate a potentially an even more dangerous or fatal situation. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Laura Clary has been a registered nurse for 11 years. In 2010, she completed her forensic nursing training at Greater Baltimore Medical Center and joined the GBMC team as a forensic nurse examiner. She has been the clinical program manager at the GBMC Safe and Domestic Violence Program since 2014 and oversees all aspects of the program. Laura is certified to care for patients that have been victims of sexual assault, rape, child abuse and neglect, intimate partner violence, and human trafficking. Laura obtained her national professional certification as a sexual assault nurse examiner from the International Association of Forensic Nurses in 2013. Laura is a Board of Nursing approved forensic nurse examiner instructor and has taught and precepted registered nurses and physicians from all over the country. She is an active member of the International Association of Forensic Nurses, as well as the Maryland Child Abuse Medical Providers, and is chair of the Baltimore County Sexual Assault Response Team. In May of 2017, she was nationally recognized for her work and was awarded the title of America's Most Amazing Nurse by Prevention Magazine, and additionally awarded Baltimore County's Woman of the Year in 2018. So hi, good morning, Laura. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good. You know, it's such an honor to speak with you today, and I know a fair amount about you, and I'm so impressed. We'll all see that today when I'm speaking with you. Just a moment about us. I lost my daughter, Kristen, in June of 2005 in a dating violence murder. She was trying to break up with her boyfriend at that time, and, and he wouldn't have it. And then he did what he did. He killed her. Um, that's what drew me into speaking out in various ways about dating violence and domestic violence. So my question is, what drew you not only into becoming a nurse, but later into this highly challenging forensic nursing field? So I, I always knew that I wanted to work in the healthcare field. I always knew that I wanted to help people. So I went into nursing and I actually started off working in inner city Baltimore in an emergency department. I, I loved it. But I would also encounter victims of intimate partner and sexual violence, and we didn't have a program at the hospital that I worked at. So I started looking into what services were available for these patients, and I stumbled across forensics. And I just happened to also have a love for forensics as well. So 
I started my forensic nursing journey and I've loved every minute of doing it. It's so obvious. I mean, I we won't be able to go through your whole history be, because we need another hour, but I just think it's so great. The more I've watched YouTube videos about GBMC, what you and your team do there, it's not for the faint of heart by any means. And I know that you know it takes a lot of patience, but there's probably a fair amount of burnout too because of what walks or is wheeled through your doorways there. So God bless you all. Laura, I spend a fair amount of time, good amount of time, disseminating dating violence awareness and education, and it's with the hope that our young adult women and men will never suffer the scourge of dating violence. But there are many parents out there who do not think or believe that their children, and more specifically their daughters, will ever become victims of sexual assault or sexual abuse or intimate partner violence. It's almost like they just don't believe it happens in neighborhoods like theirs, so they don't need to know anything about it. And I'm always perplexed by this. What do you tell parents who feel that way, like they don't need to be concerned or, or know any more about this? You're exactly right. And unfortunately, this is something that we encounter when people say, oh, well, this doesn't happen in our community, or it certainly doesn't happen in our family. And right. we know working in this field that these crimes don't discriminate. They can affect anybody, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation, socioeconomic status. And maybe it doesn't affect your family personally, but maybe it affects your neighbor or your coworker or somebody that you come into contact with. So I think one of the first things we can do to move towards prevention is increasing education, increasing awareness, and just recognizing that this crime doesn't discriminate. I feel the very same way. And, and in some cases, increasing the education in some places, in some cases, would be like starting it because it's not like there's so much there and we need to dial it up. And you know, for people who think it doesn't happen around them, what I feel is that, that they look at it like, well, it doesn't happen here, so I don't need to know about it. And the fact they don't know about it, don't know the warning signs, then if it's happening around them, well, they don't know it's happening anyway. So it, it's kind of like you know, layered in, in its own trouble. Right. Laura, you lecture at high schools and colleges, and I know even a lot of other places, I'm sure private companies, you lecture about safe dating. So as a parent, let's say I heard you speak. Now, I heard you, I've heard you speak. I'm walking to my car. What do you hope I take away with me? So I think to kind of piggyback on the previous question that this is happening right in your community. And again, it may not be personally affecting your family and it may not be your child, but maybe it's your child's best friend. So I really want parents to take away the red flags and things to look for. And when people think about intimate partner violence, domestic violence, they immediately go towards physical violence, but there's so much more to look for. So the red flags like controlling behaviors, overbearing, you know, um, tracking someone on their electronic devices, isolating them from their friends and family. So if you notice a child starting to distance themselves, not engaging in activities that they previously enjoyed, that's the time when we really need to engage in that conversation. Yeah, that's great advice. That is absolutely great. You're right. When you see your child seems to be changing in different ways, it's it's not they're just going through a phase or it's all about just part of growing up. I mean, you really have to start to to gently ask some questions. Let's say a mother or father discovered their daughter was in an active, abusive relationship. What should these parents do immediately, do you think? 
So first and foremost, you need to support your child. Let them know that you are there for them and engage in that conversation. So I always tell parents, you don't want to talk at your child. You want to talk with them. So allow them to ask questions. Explain to them what concerns that you have. Let them know that they don't deserve to be in a violent relationship, that they deserve better, and that this wasn't their fault. And if at this point the child is not ready to be open and engage in that conversation, let them know that you're there for them when they are and that there's other resources available as well. Yeah, I know that's got to be very hard to do. Make them aware that you are there for them, that what's happening to them is not their fault, and that they deserve to be in a healthy and happy relationship free from abuse and violence. Being in a relationship like that has got to feel like for that young person, that's got to feel like you're trapped. I mean, you're absolutely trapped and you can't see any way out of it. And you think you like this person or love this person, but what's going on is not comfortable. It's, it's got to be awful. And they don't know how much to share. One of the, the other half of that question has to be then, what should these parents not do? What should they avoid from doing? Because if I were to sit down with my child, let's say my daughter, and she was telling me these things, this is about the last thing I want to hear. So it's all, it's bad news and I want it to go away. But what do I need to avoid doing? So, you know, you never want to blame somebody for being in the situation that they are. They should never feel like it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what parents want to do is try to control that situation. It's natural that you want to control that situation sure to protect your child. Right. But sometimes being overbearing and controlling can actually push that child further away from you. So you want to make them aware that, hey, I'm here. I believe you. This is not your fault. And there are other resources. If you don't feel comfortable opening up to me as a parent, let me give you this number to a hotline or a chat room. Let me give you this resource to a counselor, someone that you can speak with that's maybe a little bit different than the perspective of your own parent, because yeah, there are great. resources available. That's great. You know, one thing that I feel like I just picked up on this, even though my daughter's tragedy was over 16 years ago, but it just occurred to me in the last couple of months in talking with someone that it just seems like the nicest, sweetest, kindest girls and women wind up in these abusive relationships. Do you think it's that there is anything to it? I know, you know, my conversations are not scientific, but do you think there's a certain type of young woman who winds up in an abusive relationship more than any other type of woman? In my personal experience in doing this work for over 10 years, I can honestly say that there is no stereotypical victim. So we okay. see over hundreds of patients a year and they come from all different walks of life. And this is why I say it is important to really put this out there that this crime can affect anybody, including someone in your own family. So really having awareness about that, I think is so important. Many young adults experience dating abuse and they don't recognize it as such. I, I tend to think that's because, and I've met people who are 12, 13, 14, 15, let's say. And sometimes when I look at it, I think maybe they just haven't been in that many relationships or their coping skills aren't tuned up very much because they really haven't had that much frequency. But, but they act sometimes like what they're going through is normal or or they say, well, you know, it's just a phase or they look at it like, well, you don't, you know, you don't know him like I do. I mean, you hear certain things or I tell you certain things, but you don't know him. I mean, he's really, he's a great guy and they kind of defend their abuser. And I'm not talking just about emotional abuse, but 
but even serious physical abuse like hard punching and strangulation. I spoke at a high school last year and this young woman came up and I mean, she was forgiving this guy who strangled her this one time because she said the wrong thing. What can you tell someone who has experienced serious physical abuse in a relationship when you know exactly what can happen and they don't find a way to get free from it? What do you tell that person? So when we care for patients, and that's one of the services that we provide here at GBMC is specialized medical forensic care for victims of intimate partner violence who have been strangled. We are very, very real and truthful with them. At that point, that relationship has reached one of the highest levels of violence. And we know that what could come after that particular incident will escalate a potentially an even more dangerous or fatal situation. So we are very, very real with our patients at that point. And I think, you know, as somebody who is listening to this, at that point, that is a time where you need to say, hey, I'm very concerned because the fact that it has reached this high level, I'm very concerned about your safety. I need you to take these resources, have them available, and start maybe looking for a way to get out of this. And I am here for you for when you're ready to make that step. It's really difficult, too, because when someone decides to leave that abusive relationship, it's the highest level of danger in their entire life. Right. So it's difficult for them to make that, right. that decision. So having support is important. Would you think the next move would be for them to go to law enforcement? Or would you think the next thing is to call up House of Ruth or domestic violence agency, what, what would be, and maybe the answer is both, what would you tell that person if you thought, you know, you are so close to being the, you know, having the worst happen? So again, that that's a personal decision. Um, allowing them to make that decision and supporting them through that is really important. A lot of victims aren't ready to go to police initially. Maybe they seek help in healthcare. Maybe they come through GBMC safe before they're ready to make that decision to go to law enforcement. Oftentimes, these victims encounter healthcare or um, counseling services before they're ready to make that step to law enforcement. So being there as a support person, letting them know that you're there to talk, you can drive them if they need to get somewhere safely, encouraging them mm -hmm. to make a safety plan and a getaway plan. But ultimately, it's a personal decision on when they make that step to contact law enforcement. I have a feeling that going to law enforcement to get protection orders and things like that can really trigger the abuser to take it to its worst place. Do you have an opinion about that? I just wonder if an abuser finds out, is handed a piece of paper that says someone went to a judge and said all these things about him or her. And now they've got, it's like they're looking at it like, oh, I see. So you went to the police about me. That that could, that could spark the right. worst. So, and, and we've seen that with our patients where they're really concerned because they say, I'm not able to protect myself. What is this piece of paper going to do? They're not going to care about this piece of paper. And it's only going to get worse if they find out about it. So we really yes. emphasize having a safety plan in place, having somewhere safe to go. And having that all set and ready, because some of these situations do escalate so high that that protective order doesn't mean anything to the abuser at that point. Every day, those experiencing domestic or intimate partner abuse are now documenting their experiences. But the law is very specific, and what is relevant to the survivor is not the same as what the courts allow as evidence. Victim's voice, which is all one word with no punctuation, victim's voice helps capture the details of each incident 
in a way that meets the very specific and confusing requirements because legally admissible documentation really doesn't matter until it does. Victim's Voice, giving victims a legal voice. If you cannot afford a license, Victim's Voice partners can provide one for you at no cost. Find partner members and more information on the web at victimsvoice.app. And you can also find them on social using at Victim's Voice app. The woman who prosecuted our case said, and she realized that this is a high school kid, this is not easy to do, but she said, you know, what I'd want is if you're going to break up with somebody, get someone else's phone, call them up in one minute, say, we're done. I'll never see you again. And if they can, then get out of the town, get out of the state for weeks at a time. And like you said, then have some kind of a safety plan where you just take yourself out of circulation. Not an easy thing to do for a high school or college student, but still, you know, move to California. I mean, I don't know, you know, just, just, uh, right. And, and get we away. coordinated having some of our younger patients move to other States just to temporarily relocate, to be with family, anything that we can do to keep them safe. We emphasize, especially in the, the teenage age group, that if you're going to end an abusive relationship, don't agree to meet that person somewhere private. You know, you want to be somewhere yes. public with lots of people around or again, over the phone, somewhere where you have that distance to keep yourself safe, because that is the highest um, level of danger at that point. Yes. That's one of the things I always emphasize too, that meeting one last time could be the last thing you do in your life. Uh, I've met a few people who, after they had to go to the hospital, after meeting that guy one last time, I mean, they were, they were fortunate to be alive. Lori, you've seen some of the worst that one person can do to another, and yet some partners stay for months, even years. And this is a dating relationship, and these they stay in these toxic dating relationships. So why do you think it happens, especially when it's so clear to you and me and probably some people listening, that it will not be heading to a good place? I mean, why do these people stay, especially when they are dating, meaning not married, they don't have children, there's no financial strings attached. Why do they stay in? So most of the time, abusive relationships start off like seemingly normal relationships. It's hard to accept that somebody who we're in a relationship with would hurt us and abuse us. Somebody that is expected That's to care right. for you and love mm -hmm. you. And the victim oftentimes genuinely loves their partner, even if they're abusive. And what we see a lot of times is this cycle of violence where you have your honeymoon stage, where things start off really great. And then you see things start to escalate a little bit and then escalate a little bit more. And then you have this kind of explosive mm -hmm. situation that happens. And then the abuser apologizes. They promise that it's never going to happen again. And the victim ultimately wants to believe that because they love that partner. And then that cycle starts over again, where they have that honeymoon stage, where things are great and you know they're getting gifts and everything looks like it's it's going to be okay and then the abuse occurs again it's it's an entire cycle right and with teens oftentimes they're inexperienced in navigating these situations they may be embarrassed to disclose to a friend or to their parent and they might not know how to safely get out of this relationship just because they're inexperienced with relationships in general i call it the template that every abuser follows and and what you just walked through is exactly what i saw in an article a few years ago, and I tell people this all the time, I make sure it's in every talk that I give, that there is a real live five or six point template 
that abusers follow. Now, here's something that I, I have people ask me about all the time, and it, it just seems like we hear about a greater frequency of dating violence cases than ever before. Do you think it's because there's more of it, or is it just being reported more often? It's just in the news more often. I personally think that it's because of the increased awareness about this happening. I mean, that's why I said getting out there and educating about this happening in our communities is is so important. So I think the fact that domestic violence and sexual violence have been brought kind of to the forefront of things, that people are made more aware of it. So they understand that it's happening and they're able to come forward. And one of the things we always do is just push that there are resources, push that there are safe places to turn to. In all of our outreach, we are providing hotline numbers and community services that victims can reach out to. And and it's my hope that more people are coming forward because they know that they have these resources available. Would you say someone should go to a national domestic violence hotline? you know, like the 800-799-SAFE, or should they go to a more local domestic violence agency, do you think? Do you have an opinion about that? I think it kind of depends. It's whatever um, someone decides to reach out to. Going to the national hotline is great. At least it's somewhere that they went to. But there are more local resources. And for the teens, especially since they've they're so focused on technology and they're online a lot. There are confidential chat services where you can go in and chat with someone about what's happening to you if it's not safe, where you just don't feel comfortable making that phone call and talking to somebody. So we've really worked hard to make sure that all age groups are able to reach somebody when they're in this kind of situation, even if it's just to ask for some advice or just to have someone to listen to you through it. That's great advice. And you know, one of the things I'll tell people to do is that if you feel uncomfortable making the call, then maybe Maybe if you talk with a friend about it, both of you sit down, make the call together. You can kind of hold each other's hands, so to speak, and and get through it. And if you don't want to be on the call any longer, get off the call. I mean, just, but at least get started. So I just have a terminology question. The terms sexual assault, sexual abuse, and intimate partner violence, I feel, are kind of tossed around at times interchangeably. And I just wondered your opinion. Do you see a difference in those terms? In my profession, the there is a pretty significant difference in each term. So sexual assault, we're typically referring to someone who does not have care and custody over another person. So somebody who could be um, an intimate partner, somebody who is an acquaintance, a coworker. So there's no direct care, custody, supervision over that person. Abuse, we specifically use the term abuse when it comes to victims that are abused by a caretaker, a coach, someone who has temporary or permanent custody over that child, someone who is responsible for taking care of that child or that vulnerable adult, for example, in a nursing home. And then intimate partner violence is what we're discussing now, that power and control that one partner uses to control another partner. And I will say, oftentimes we do see sexual assault and intimate partner violence intersect where you have both components going on in one situation. So sexual assault, is that, I'm trying to understand the spectrum of that. I mean, is that anything from touching inappropriately to... Yes, so there's some kind of inappropriate touching for you know sexual gratification without the explicit consent of the victim. Okay, without consent. Parents aren't equipped to sit down and talk about dating violence with their middle school, high school, or even college-age children. So what can they do 
to get this life-saving information to their children before they are confronted with it directly or when a friend of theirs is experiencing it. So I always say it's a very difficult conversation for parents to have, but it is an absolutely necessary conversation. And it's a conversation that we need to start early. So I get that question hmm. a lot about, well, when when should we start talking? And I say yes. as soon as possible. Good question. So you start talking to your kids in elementary school about healthy friendships and boundaries and respecting your yes. peers. You start that early and then it'll make it easier to build on that conversation as you get older. For someone who maybe hasn't had those difficult conversations, sometimes we say use what's going on on television as a conversation starter. You know, when you oh, see something great. on TV about this topic, use that as a way to kind of go into this conversation with with your child. And again, your child may not be in that situation at the moment, but at least then your child will know how to be in a healthy relationship, how to help their friend if their friend happened to get into an abusive situation. And then your child will know that you are there as a support person if something were happened that you're open to talking about it. Yeah, that's a great entry point. That really is because... It's really, unfortunately, with media or let's say television, you see, you see unhealthy relationships and you see unhealthy behavior, but it's almost sent up as, as that it's okay. So having those conversations, which un unfortunately there's this undercurrent of this is okay, and yet you're having a conversation to say, well, it's not really okay. It's not normal. And I like the idea of starting early, just talking about relationships and friendships and what jealousy is all about and and what it's like to be isolated and what it's like to isolate someone else out of, of a group. You know, how much, you know, we, you learn pretty early in your life how much that hurts. And that is great practice for dating. So one of the things that when I give speeches or when even when I wrote my book, I tried my best to stay away from statistics because there are, statistics have a way of impressing some people and boring other people. My question is, how do you serve up the prevalence of dating violence in the world? How do you serve up the prevalence or how bad is it? It's a big general question. So the statistics show that more than likely, you know, somebody who is personally affected by this. I mean, upwards of one in four women and one in seven men are a victim of some form of physical or sexual violence at some point in their life. And Unfortunately, we know that this is an underreported statistic because this is happening a lot and people never come forward about what happened to them. So those statistics are shocking, but understand that those statistics are underreported. So it's probably even more than that. That's an interesting thing that you just said, because I usually put out the number one in three women will suffer serious physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. And typically it happens between the ages of 16 and 24. I mean, I've said it so many times. I'm listening to myself say it now, like I'm listening to a recording of me saying it. And some people say, well, it's not one in three, it's one in four. But I usually follow it up with, but how many people, when they have something like that happen, find the right statistician and say, oh, it happened again, you know, to my friend this time. And the number could go up and up and up. So if we're saying one in four, we're saying one in three just seems to me it has to be a higher number than that. And I think you, what you just said underscores that. Exactly. Having a resource like you on this podcast, being able to ask you these questions, is there something that, that I might have missed? Is there something that you feel like you always want to tell people and that we didn't cover it yet? Um, the takeaways that I always have, it's never your fault. You didn't deserve this, what happened to you. 
And there are resources out there for you within your community, on the internet, in hotlines, so that when you're ready to get help, you're not alone. That's one thing that's played back so many times by people who have been victimized, people who are survivors now, but they felt so alone. They felt like they couldn't go to people or they felt like if they went to people, they'd be judged for it, that it would change the relationship they had with other people. They didn't know where to turn. And I think the more that you and I and others talk about the different resources that are out there that they can go to, that they can kind of get themselves closer and closer to healing and and really moving on and, and finding the right kinds of relationships. And another thing I would say, and, and it's something that somebody said to me that, you know, when in a training that was so impactful and I share it all the time, is that as a friend, if somebody comes to you and discloses that they're in an yes. abusive relationship or they were sexually yes. abused or assaulted, please understand what an incredible honor that is as a friend, that someone felt and trusted you enough that they're telling you one of the most traumatic and embarrassing and scariest things that's ever happened to them. So you as a friend, it is your job at that point to believe them and to support them and to be there for them in the future because you may be the only person that they've ever told. That's a very good point. And especially maybe for parents, it takes some practice to become a good listener. It doesn't take a lot of practice to become a great interrogator, on the other hand, but to ask leading questions like, well, how long has this been happening? Or how do you feel about that? Or how many of your friends know about that? But as you know, and I know, nobody gets out of one of these relationships until they bottom out and they want out. Because their first impression is, well, I'm in this relationship, but I'm in this relationship and in some ways have to defend it. And I have to try to explain why I was in it anyway, meaning like, well, he's really not that bad a guy, you know, most of the time, but these other things are happening. I mean, it's a tough thing. And if you pounce on that person, you kind of inadvertently become another abusive person because it's like, wow, now I'm getting it from mom or now I'm getting it from dad or I'm getting it from my friend. Bad enough that I'm getting it in this relationship, you know, this kind of hammering feeling. But it's it's a lot. It's a lot to process when you're young. Laura, thank you for giving us your precious time and sharing your vast experience. My appreciation for you and your team started the evening I met you in early 2020 at the celebration of GBMC's newly designed victim-centered unit with its two state-of-the-art suites. These were equipped to provide the highest quality of care to victims, regardless of age, ethnicity, and economic background. Reading your write-up, it says that this unit represents the best in the whole country. And I'm not a good judge of what the best in the country is, but I will tell you when I walked through it with you and others, I was really impressed. The speed that you bring to to getting tests run and all the different things you have to do and, and running evidence through it, that type of thing was just, just like from... Uh, from Star Wars or Star Trek. And you are the clinical program manager at the GBMC Safe and Domestic Violence Program. Your passion and dedication energize me and I'm sure thousands more. So just really, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to have you on here and to, to speak and share. And, and I'd love to be able to call upon you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. The When Dating Hurts podcast is growing steadily. Why is that? Analytics tell us it has to do with relevant content that listeners really want to hear. And in our case, we're talking about your daughters and sons. What could be more important or interesting? Let me thank you for listening in. 
and for asking friends and family to listen too. If you want to reach us, head to whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.